0: Direction Point Direction Point A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward. My name is Jason. I'm your host on this journey. This very long journey. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. We are currently very early on in season five. We are covering the 1982 and 1983 novelizations this season. This week we are on the April 1982 book, Doctor Who and Warrior's Gate. We are in the middle of a run. Season 18 stories, the first three of which were novelized in publication order. That was last week, episode 66, State of Decay. This week, episode 67, Warrior's Gate. And then next week, episode 68, The Keeper of Trocken. This season will run through the November 1983 paperback release of Doctor Who and the Five Doctors. Coming up this season... We have several very popular returning guests. Some of the guests behind my top five most downloaded episodes of all time are going to be back this season. We have several authors, authors of Doctor Who books. We have authors from Black Archive books. I see a best-selling author coming up down the line this season, which covers the 1982 and 1983 books. We are also going to have our first novelization that is so epic that it is going to require two full episodes to discuss. That's right. There is going to be one book that will encompass back-to-back weeks' worth of releases dedicated to the one book and its parent TV serial. I will not tease which one. However, we have some very exciting things coming up over the next few months, so do not miss out. Episodes come out. Every Sunday morning at about 7 a.m. Greenwich Meridian time. And you can also find them on your podcatcher of choice. We were originally a product of Anchor, a division of Spotify. The Anchor identity is being rolled into Spotify, and I will doubtless have to change my URLs pretty soon. Taking a look at mail, I love getting mail. You can reach me at Dr. Who Literature, that's Dr. Who Literature, at Gmail. Com. This week, we've heard from Conrad. You've heard Conrad on the show several times before. You might have heard his voice on Big Finish Audios. He's also a regular co-host slash panelist on the Trap One podcast. Conrad is a great friend of mine and a great friend of the program. Conrad wants us to know that he listens to the show every Sunday as part of his regular ritual. And as he listens to the show, he is wearing his crown from 20 Questions. Now there is a new game of 20 questions with this week's guest. I will not spoil for you as to whether or not this week's guest has taken away Conrad's crown. You'll have to listen to the end of the episode to find out. This week, we are joined by Adam Clegg of the Real McCoy Podcast. Adam has been on the show before. If you look back in your archives, he joined us for episode 33, The Brain of Morbius, That, of course, was quite some time ago, so I'm looking forward to finding out what he's up to. And I'm looking forward to what he thinks of Season 18, the JNT slash Christopher H. Bidmead era of the show. We know that he loves the Philip Hinchcliffe era, of course, as do I. But in a few moments, Adam will talk to us all about Doctor Who and Warrior's Gate. One last prefatory matter. I am calling for submissions for my upcoming episode about The Five Doctors. If you've been with me since episode 50, The War Games, for a special story like that, I invited my audience members to chime in with audio recordings, narrating their memories of the book and of the TV story, and I'd like to do the same thing for The Five Doctors. An audio recording of three to five minutes in length would be best. But of course, be as creative as you want. Talk to me about the five doctors. Talk to me about the five doctors novelization. Talk to me about when and how you first saw it. And you can send those to you by email, Doctor Who Literature. That's drwho literature at gmail. Or you can send it to me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels. That's drwho novels. I'm very much looking forward to hearing from you. That episode is coming out at the end of the season. That is the November 1983 novelization and the last episode of Doctor Who Literature Podcast, Season 5. So you have a little bit of time to get to work. And I'm really interested to hear what you guys are going to come up with. Coming up next, on the other side of the break, Adam Clegg, Season 18, Doctor Who, Warrior's Gate. Let's get to it.
1: You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Cobranson, Asad Hischke, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. It's the entire who On Shuffle. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Literature podcast.
0: All right, Adam Clegg, Excellent. welcome back to Doctor Who Literature.
1: Thanks. Uh, thank you for having me back, and thank you for having me back for one of my favorite stories. So um, I'm looking forward to this.
0: I'll tell you, the very first time that I saw Warrior's Gate, would have been late 1985 now of course as you know in the states pbs was showing the doctors out of order so i had access to like five different pbs stations in the new york city suburbs and they all had a different doctor on this was the very first time that i'd seen warriors gate but my local station had just moved the show from 7 p.m to 11:30 p.m and i'm 12 years old and i'm only allowed to stay up that late on friday so i could only watch season 18 on Fridays. so all i saw of warrior's gate was part one and i found it very very <laughs> confusing and i had nightmares about the ending with birak going through the mirror but it was two years before i saw the whole thing so for the longest time all i had was the book to keep me company now this is one of those stories that gets better as I get older, and I'll be talking about this on the other side of the program when I'm reviewing the book. This is the work of a 27-year-old man, and the level of genius that he puts into the script is well beyond my capabilities, and I'm nearly twice the age now that Stephen Gallagher was when he wrote it. So I am just in absolute awe of Warrior's Gate, and I'm glad to hear that you are too. What's your experience with the story?
1: Well, I first experienced it on VHS. It would have been ooh, mid-90s. They released the Espace trilogy, and I picked it up. And I hadn't really seen much uh, series by this point. I think I'd seen Leisure Hive. I don't think I'd seen Logopolis by this stage or Keeper of Traken. But I just – I, mean, I love I loved the whole set. And like, like I said, season, series 18 is one of my all-time favourite eras of the show. Um, but yeah, Warrior's Gate, I, I just loved it instantly because I think for me – it is kind of one of those examples of what I, this little subgenre in Doctor Who, which is the Doctor in really weird spaces. So you get like this Mind Robber, Ghost Light. I kind of feel you don't get it so much in the modern series, but I think you can make maybe a case for Heaven Sent. Uh, certainly, sections of It Takes You Away, definitely. Um, and yeah, I just it's one of those stories that the logic is interesting but it just it, it just draws you in it's very it's a very visual story people often joke with Doctor Who that you know it looks cheap and everything etc cetera, etc cetera. but Doctor Who is in many ways a television experience first and foremost because it is such a visual show it's a visual show from the moment Ian and Barbara first walk into the into this blue police box and end up in this otherworldly space um and this is you know this is so Visual and I mean it's a it's one of the stories that as I've gotten older I've appreciated it but I also appreciated how lucky we are that it is so good given the production of it was nightmarish by all accounts uh, uh,
0: not to put too fine a point on it yes
1: <laughs> and yeah so there was a lot of let's say tension during a time when it was fairly tense behind the scenes anyway um but it works is one of those cases sometimes something like that you know you get kind of tension and thing just doesn't work and other times something this good comes out of it and yeah because you and i were both at galley last year stephen gallagher was there and he was he chatted a bit about this and it was interesting for me because it was actually one of his earliest tv works i think like he's had a really like long and good career in british tv since but this was very early on and he he, you know he said there's a lot of changes made but he was very he wasn't one of those writers who was like they changed it. How dare they? He was like, no, it's fine. I, you know, very much a professional approach. I thought
0: I was in the coffee clutch with him. That's where you have eight or 10 guests sitting around a boardroom table on the convention level of the LAX Marriott. So I was there. Uh, David Barsky, who's a frequent contributor to this program, was there. And I'm sure Steven said the same thing at several different panels over the course of that weekend. But what struck me is that. He was comparing his experience with Christopher H. Bidmead script editing this story versus comparing the experience of Eric Sayward script editing Terminus <laughs> two years later. He said that he still considers it his story, even though Bidmead made some changes because he and Bidmead were on the same level and they were thinking of the same things. So he considers the work his own, whereas what happened with Terminus is, is quite a different story.
1: Yes. Yeah, I. It's. it's – Yes, <laughs> that, that I understand that as well. I mean, I don't particularly like Terminus. I haven't watched it for a while. I definitely, you know, will always go to Warrior's Gate if uh, between the two of them. But yeah, some writers, particularly during that kind of early to mid eighties, just don't have any luck with productions at all. <laughs> like really disastrous, in fact. But yeah, we're just, I'm just so glad that Warrior's Gate is, it comes out so strongly.
0: I want to backtrack a moment because you made a very interesting statement about the new series. And I guess the phrase that I'll use is liminal spaces because I've seen that used a lot. There are probably a few more new series stories that are set in that kind of you know, null space or virtual space. Looking a little bit further back in time than Heaven Sent, I think we could put Amy's Choice in that category. Mm. That's a dream episode where the doctor is being stalked by an antagonist that has a connection to him, and they're never quite sure when they're in the real world versus not. And along the same lines, going back to Amy, the girl who waited also takes place in an unusual space where the rules of physics and the rules of time have been completely inverted. So those are two Amy stories with similar titles that it's easy to confuse, but Those are also stories that take place in a world where the doctor is on the back foot, and where time is running in the wrong direction, and where the space that they're in is as much the antagonist of the story as a terrific actor like Clifford Rose, who's playing the human villain. He's not even the main focus of the story because there's so much else going on. And I think if we were to brainstorm, we could probably think of other classic, other new series adventures that have the same. Uh, kind of vibe there was one i think it was can you hear me one of the uh middle season jody whitaker stories mm-hmm. which also takes place in a space where the doctor is not in control very interesting type of storytelling
1: yeah no that that's actually a fairly good point when it's interesting you mentioned the girl who waited because i was when i was thinking about you know these kind of stories i did half consider that and i think you're right actually and again with amy's choice, I actually weirdly didn't pop into my head i guess what's different now is that things like ghosts like warriors gate and you know the mind robber those are like my three examples <laughs> um they were generally considered you know when when i was a fan started being a fan in, in the 90s those were considered like the weird ones and i don't think people tend to think of the girl who waited or amy's choices as or even heaven sent again as weird and maybe because we're more used to those sort of stories there's an audience now that's more used to that kind of weirdness, whether maybe when the classic shows was first classic series was first running uh there was they that kind of using that kind of space felt newer in a way um i mean i'm not I'm not sure but it is it is it is a favorite subject I like it when Doctor goes to weird places um and and, and oddities and i you know yeah. I'm one of those people i am like does the plot make sense no, but I like the vibes. So, it's, uh, if it's weird enough, I will just go along with it.
0: You also raised an interesting point, and let's talk about this for a few minutes. You talk about the production nightmare behind Warrior's Gate. It is interesting to note that when you're talking about the classic series stories between 63 and 89, which take place in these liminal spaces, there's that phrase again, it's always because there's some crisis in the production team. So, for example, Celestial Toymaker, you have the outgoing producer who is trying to get William Hartnell fired. When he's mm. not able to get Hartnell fired, he quits the series and is replaced by a different producer halfway through the production block. You then have the situation where you're on a multiple drafts of a story by multiple writers. So the original idea for Celestial Toymaker has little relation to what gets filmed. William Hartnell is only in the first 10 minutes of part one and the last 10 minutes of part four. So that's a nightmarish space in a story that is made under nightmarish circumstances and its reputation Mm -hmm. and fandom has taken a pretty big hit. Mind Robber is created because part six of the Dominators was deemed too boring to air. So they cut that (laughs) down to a five part story. (laughs) But now they have a four-part story, Mind Robber, that suddenly needs a one-episode prologue. Derek Sherwin writes the thing probably on the back of a cocktail napkin in the ten minutes before they go into the studio. And it's just filmed either on the TARDIS set or against a white backdrop, a cyclorama, if you will. And Warrior's Gate is almost visually the same thing as Mind Robber because it takes place, for the most part, in a white space. Now, it doesn't have – the white robot and it's not made as quickly or as haphazardly as mine robber but do you want to talk about what happened with director paul joyce during the making of this story because i think it's going to be very informative when we talk about warrior's gate and we'll get into the differences between the book and the tv episode but i think it'll be informative for you to tell us just why the making of the tv episode was such a disaster
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, I, though I do just wanted to quickly say how unusual for you to mention the dominators on this podcast. Um, but
0: You know, yeah, I that's think... a really good point. I, I, I'm sure that Fraser <laughs> is going gonna, is gonna to weigh in. But I think this may be the very first time that I've talked about the dominators on Doctor Who Literature.
1: I, Hi, it, Fraser. It, it, it's, it's a rarely mentioned story. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, well, I think Paul Joyce, basically, he was, you know, he was very keen on bringing new directors. Uh, which you know is no bad thing because Dot Two relies on new blood coming in both both on screen and um, behind the scenes. And Paul Joyce, I believe, had done one or two things for the BBC. I don't know his exact career, but um, and been and I think JT had liked it and and brought him in. But of course, the thing is, Paul Joyce came in wanting to make a film. I mean, he talks about that on the on the on the making of you know, he had a huge filmic kind of vision and he immediately runs into trouble because he wants, he starts filming. There's that one shot. I think it's in the first episode where it scans along the, 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 the spaceship and it's, it's a lovely shot, but he includes the ceiling, the studio ceiling with the lights on. Now this upsets the lighting technicians and there's a whole hoo-ha about that. And basically it seems like obviously Doctor Who, is not a film and it particularly back then even now it's made always under quite tight conditions and and especially back then you know if you know that the, the bbc's filming schedule it, it's very tight you know you get so you get up to you get so many days of filming you get so many hours in the studio if you go past 10 o'clock uh, i think it's 10 o'clock uh, you get charged extreme amounts of overtime um or, or somebody from the electrician's union might just turn off the lights. Who can tell? And it, basically, you have to work within the system. You can do great work within the system, but you you kind of have to respect it because you're part of a team. Paul Joyce is very much like, no, I'm the director. This does not go down well. I mean, one of the fascinating things about the, the, the making of documentary for this is he's really rude about Barry Letts. <laughs> like he's really dismissive of barry Letts, which is so unusual because people generally you know people love barry Letts. uh you know anyone else talks about him they wonder he's like barry i told barry the future of film uh, of tv was film and he I, he didn't believe me or something like that he's he he's like it's not theater it's film or something and he's really like he obviously did not like barry yet uh barry Letts at all and and it's funny because it, i've read things since where it's things like he didn't even bother doing a um Oh, I can't think of this actor, but the, all directors had to do like a camera movement plan, essentially, because with the setup of how it was shot, cameras would move around while while the scenes were happening and they'd have to make sure like they wouldn't get tangled, the cables wouldn't get caught up. He didn't bother doing that. So Graham Harper had to basically sit down and do the plan. You know, the rumor is about the story is that that Graham Harper, who was, I believe, production assistant also off, uh, on this, uh, had to sh- had to direct a lot of it because Paul Joyce would occasionally walk out, or or, I believe John Nathan-Turner fired him at one point, but then he came back 10 minutes later when John Nathan-Turner was like, no one else knows what's supposed to be happening. Um, Yeah, it's really fascinating. It's worth reading interviews with him. Like he's Paul Joyce has never, even for a moment, gone, actually, maybe I was working in a system that wasn't ready for that. And I, I, you know, at the end of the day, obviously everyone wants to create Great Dot 2, but at the end of the day, you have to get... X amount of minutes in a can, or there's nothing going to be shown on TV. I don't think he ever quite accepted that, you know. But it worked. It miraculously, what got to screen was good.
0: (laughs) Those are some really interesting points you bring up. So, I mean, when you're talking about Barry Letts, Barry Letts was a very innovative director for his Mm. time, and he was not afraid to fire a director. Who couldn't play within the bounds of the system. I mean, we know now from the season eight Blu-ray that he fired Timothy Coombe from ever working on Doctor Who again after what happened with oh, Mind of yeah. Evil, where Coombe didn't get enough coverage of the soldiers faces during the outdoor battle scene in part for episode five slash episode six. So Barry Letts was a director himself and he would get rid of you if you couldn't play within the rules. Mm -hmm. J.N.T. must have been aware of what happened during season 17 of the classic series with Nightmare of Eden and Alan Bromley, Mm -hmm. who got fired the last night in the studio because he could not control his actors. But Bromley was old fashioned and stodgy, and he was kind of a dinosaur. I think it was his last work as a director, whereas Paul Joyce is a young Turk. Paul Joyce – and this is my recollection from having read the Blu-ray Warriors Gate production notes – Joyce wanted to do the thing basically single camera, which is, of course, Mm -hmm. how we do movies now. But you can't do single camera on a five camera setup when you only have two and a half hours in studio and you're making this thing over four or or six nights. It's just not possible to get 90 minutes of television that way. So at the same time, this is the second time in the making of season 18 where a director basically gets sacked by JNT because he's being too creative for his own good. We have Leisure Hive coming up here, or as we say in the States, Leisure Hive, in a couple <laughs> of weeks. And that is a wonderful production. And I love Leisure Hive as a TV production to bits. But again, Love at Bickford was not able to work within the bounds of the system, went incredibly over budget. So JNT must have had some PTSD. JNT, PTSD, that's probably too many acronyms for one episode of the show. But JNT must have had agita, to use an Italian word, from Leisure Hive, so that when he saw the same thing happening on Warriors Gate, he's like, "This can't happen to me twice in a year." And this is why, for the rest of JNT's run, you have Ron Jones and Peter Moffat coming back over and over again yes. to be flat, <laughs> visually inventive stories because they could at least work on time and under budget.
1: I was just gonna I was gonna say that actually there there is a reason the Ron Jones and the Peter Moffats of, of the series, particularly you know up to the mid '80s, keep coming back. And uh, you know, as much as we people aren't massively keen on on their on, on you know on their on their lack of visual styles, shall we say and <laughs> there is, there is a certain element of yes you're making up but at the end of the day you've got to get it in the can because that's going out on sat on saturday at 6 p.m whether it's finished or not <laughs> you know no one wants to show a repeat
0: it is so frustrating to watch a Ron Jones episode because the camera never moves. You have these incredibly long <laughs> static takes. There's no zooms. There's no tracking shots. I mean, the camera just sits there and the actors stand in front of it. And you have these 90-second takes and you're just desperate visually for the camera to move and for something to happen. But it's it's, it's sub-soap opera. And Doctor Who, of course, needs to have a little, more <laughs> a little more visual flair than that. But you're right. I think Paul Joyce was fired from the set. And he went down to the bar knowing that they were going to call him because nobody else was going to be able to make his, his camera script work. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. I think the results speak for themselves. The results are incredible. But but yeah, JNT, especially as a rookie producer with Barry Letts, their babysit him, this was not going to work. And that's why Paul Joyce never comes back to the show. And that's why for the most of the rest of JNT's era, you get these flat, Visually non-inventive stories, and it kind of stays that way until Graham Harper and Alan Waring and some of the later directors come around. But this almost kills the JNT era before it got started, wouldn't you say?
1: Oh, yes, yeah, because things went over budget, and I think he was reprimanded. And I think most, it's not like he's the only producer that happened to Barry lets himself a few times got his knuckles wrapped for things running over. Uh, actually, you mentioned Mind of Evil, and I think that. You know happened there as well though can i just say timothy coombe seems so sad about that like i was quite i watched that that the um the extras and he was so sad that he never got to come back and do you know i felt really bad for him but but yeah yeah it was definitely like he learned some very harsh lessons in that first in that first year and it, it's shame that his approach was to go well look peter moffat's available <laughs> but there we go it's
0: so we've talked about the, the negatives. Let's talk about how amazing Warrior's Gate is from a production standpoint. Just start naming some things that you love about the visual look of the story. Well, and I bet you that my list is almost exactly
1: the same. I I was going to say everything, but I, I love things like.
0: <laughs> we, we'll take it as read, everything, but
1: it's. <laughs> It's surprising. I, obviously, you mentioned Mind Robber earlier. How effective a white void is, like, and it is a proper white void, and that works very well. The foul's moving to it, that kind of after image effect. You know, fairly simple by today's standards, but definitely effective. The foul th- the makeup, really good. Like, they don't come up often when we talk about good makeup and do- monster makeup in Doctor Who, but really nice, really nice. I uh, obviously tom baker walking through black and white steel fo- fo- photographs you know it, it, as he moves through a mirror I, um just looks again lovely wonderful thing. not oddly enough not described in the book i, I, was, I was interested in how much of that would translate they obviously talk about the white void and the and the stone gate in the middle of it but i guess you can't really get across that kind of saying he walked through black and white photo sounds ridiculous on page but it works really well uh on screen i think that there's so much even, even things like it's a de- it's a good the the uh part the spaceship um that the slavers have is is a nice design it, it's very kind of coming into the into that alien style of like very practical very you feel like it is a place people work um oh, there's so there's so much there's there's all the little touches of stuff people do as well. Like, I love that moment, again, not in the book, but when Tom Baker overfills the red, the the wine glass and then just knocks it over with casual contempt. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it's just, it's just, it's one of those, I think it really is one of those Doctor's stories where sometimes Doctor Who's fighting, particularly classic Who sometimes it's fighting against the production design, but this is one where everyone just seemed to be on the same page.
0: Yeah, I'll just build off of what you said because I agree with you a, a thousand percent. The privateer ship is almost unique among Doctor Who spaceships in that it's shot on different levels. The only mm-hmm. other example that I can think of before Warrior's Gate is David Maloney, who's another top-tier Doctor Who director in Planet of Evil. Now, the spaceship in Planet of Evil is visually static, and it's not the best because they put all their money in the jungle set healing mm-hmm. for Planet of Evil. But you have two levels, people going up and down, for um planet of evil so warrior's gate is the same thing this the the privateer ship is on levels you have different characters doing different things at different stations at different heights and then you have the two rosencrantz and guildenstern guys aldo and royce who are sitting down on the storage level which is even further below it's one of the few spaceships that is actually a lived-in world as opposed to just you know this is what a spaceship set is supposed to look like
1: i was gonna say and and the model of the spaceships no i like the design that kind of black um kind of black model they have of it where it's just like it's a slightly unusual shape like I, or it always makes me think a little bit of a duck um i don't know why but it's just again it, it's an unusual shape among spaceship designs it's not necessarily aerodynamic but of course this is the thing spaceships actually in space do not have to be uh, aerodynamic right
0: and that, of course, becomes a plot point because you have the ship is constructed out of dwarf star alloy, so you need massive engines. And that's what ends up triggering the Jeopardy in parts three and four.
1: Yes, and it looks it looks heavy. The model looks heavy, which is al- always a good trick to pull off.
0: And then, you know, you and I are, I think, very similar in age. We may be the last generation that grew up speaking black and white because obviously by the time I'm starting to watch TV. Everything is now being made in color in the States, but I grew up in my childhood bedroom with a 13 inch black and white TV. So, all the formative television moments of my childhood, and this is between 1979 and 1984, which is how long I had that TV, everything important that I saw on my TV set was in black and white. I was watching the Baseball World Series in black and white. I was watching the New York Islanders win four consecutive Stanley Cup titles in black and white. I was watching my cartoons in black and white. I was watching Square Pegs, the American sitcom, in black and white. So I speak black and white. Now, my kid, who's you know practically a teen at this point, she just had to read Lord of the Flies for school. And we were discussing it, and I wanted to show her one of the Lord of the Flies movies, but there's a choice of two. There's the 1990 version that came out when I was in high school, and then there's the 1963 version, which is part of the Criterion Collection. Both of them are available on streaming, and I said, which one do you want to watch? So she chooses the 1990 one because it's in color. She doesn't speak black and white. It's not part of her visual language. Nowadays, black and white is associated with movies that your grandparents watch, so it doesn't work for her. So she wanted to watch the 1990 version of Lord of the Flies, which is much, much worse than the 1963 version so she made the wrong choice but for her it had to be it had to be in color then just to talk about a show that i talk about almost as much as the dominators let's talk about better call saul that is a series that takes place over multiple timelines but you know when you're in the future because in better call saul the future is always in black and white so warrior's gate almost does the same trick 35 years earlier right when you're in end space you're in color when you're in the void, it's monochrome. You're just a, a white void. And when you're in East Base, you're at Powie's Castle, which is black and white. So that's, again, Paul Joyce thinking outside of the box. And then Better Call Saul comes along 35 years later and does an entire half season in black and white because that was their visual code for this is the future. It's not in color anymore. So another great thing to praise Paul Joyce for. And, of course, he was so good at it that he was banned from working on the show ever again.
1: I believe Vince Gillian is a big Warriors Gate fan. So, you know, it <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, it's just it is a visual language that, you know, we hadn't really seen in Dot 2 up to this point. Um, but you know, now it probably wouldn't surprise as much because it was interesting what you're saying about black and white. I presume do kids still understand black and white as I mean, okay, Better Course Saul is, is flash-forward. Oh, is it flash forwards or the present? Um, depending on how you look at it. Um, but, you know, I understand black and white. If I see black and white in a show from the 90s, for example, they're showing, you know, a flashback. That's that's the idea. I'm just curious if that's still, like, do people still associate black and white, oh, this must be a flashback, or, you know, flash-forward in the case of Better Course But it's interesting, yeah, because TV literacy is, is very, very visual- <laughs> visual culture and i think it, it's changing all the time it's changing at a rapid rate what what we associate with what
0: and along the same lines before jj abrams was given the keys to the star wars and the star trek franchises and we could of course have a whole separate debate as to whether or not that was a good idea but did they did they, they have a uk show his very first TV series Felicity, which was made in the late nineties.
1: I don't think so. I have heard about it since, but I don't remember it ever being shown here. If it was, it wouldn't have been on the terrestrial channels.
0: It's a straight up nighttime soap. It's about an American high school student from California who goes to college in New York at age 18 because she's following this boy that she has a crush on who barely knows she exists And during the four years of the series, she's living in New York City. She's going to what's supposed to be NYU, which takes place in the village in Manhattan, not too far from where I work. And she's finding herself. J.J. Abrams already at that point was a huge sci-fi fan. And I believe Felicity, if not the first, it's one of the very first television series to mention Doctor Who as an existing property (laughs) that would happen a lot more once the new series came around but felicity was talking about doctor who in the 1990s which nobody else was doing so there's one episode of felicity that is an open homage to the twilight zone so there's one episode that was shot in black and white and it was given twilight zone like on-screen titles so jj abrams takes his nighttime soap and for one week only he makes a black and white Twilight Zone episode, which turns out to be a nightmarish dream sequence. So that's an example of innovative use of black and white here in the States within our within our living memory. Possibly influenced by Warriors Gate. I imagine that JJ J. Abrams might well have seen it if he was a Doctor Who fan. But of course it's not it's more the Twilight Zone than Doctor Who, but if you watched Felicity long enough, which I do not recommend, you will hear Doctor Who mentioned sooner or later. <laughs>
1: Uh, I will I will watch most things long enough if they mention dot two at some point. So. <laughs> <laughs> ah.
0: so that's Warrior's Gate on TV. Let's segue then to the book. So I'll preface, of course, by saying that we are talking about the 1982 novelization credited to John Lidegger, who is, of course, a pseudonym for Stephen Gallagher. This was not his original manuscript. JNT was just starting to take over the target line by force of will. So he nixed the original draft, because the original draft was based on the story that Gallagher submitted, and not the final version that Gallagher and Bidmead wrote or co-wrote. And it doesn't contain a lot of the final TV product. So the original draft was nixed and it ended up getting revived, and it was an audio, and now the print version of the audio is coming out later this year as part of the revived Target imprint. So you might have heard the John Colshaw narration of Gallagher's original manuscript, and in a few months you'll be able to read the original manuscript. This is the revised manuscript that he had to write to keep in line with what aired on television. But even then, there are some significant differences from the TV. So this is more it's not exactly a transcript of Warrior's Gate on television. It is, while not quite as a radical departure as what's going to be coming out later this year in 2023, this is a different version of the story, and it's one of the first Target books since the days of Malcolm Hulk that almost jettisons the original story and goes off on its own. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yes, yeah. It wasn't as far as removed as I thought it might be, but like you said, there were definite... Changes. I mean, the most obvious being the beginning, that it has like a essentially a prologue where we see the, the privateer. Um, essentially, we learn how it was damaged and how it ended, that the crew ended up in the void. And through that, we, we get a little bit more of a sense of what they come from. Because interestingly enough, I always thought that their slave trading that they were doing was essentially legal. But this kind of hints that it's not. There's a lot of talk about black market and they have to run a blockade. So it slightly shifts that.
0: And one thing we don't know is the Antonine killer. Is he a tharol Because he's mentioned as, as a cub. Is he a tharol or is he from some other alien species entirely that we never get to meet? Never mentioned on screen.
1: Uh, I read it as a tharol because, like I said, cub. And it talks about paws. So, it, to me, it would make sense that he's a tharol, uh, tharol, Um But, yeah, you know, that's never actually – that's never confirmed. Um, yeah, no, I was thinking about it. There, there's, there, I don't think he's, he's he's described beyond what he thinks about himself. There's never an outside description of him.
0: And he's also trying to destroy the privateer, which has hundreds of tharols on board, which would be a point against him not being a tharol But – I guess I don't have the answer to that without asking Stephen Gallagher himself, which I utterly f- failed to do at Galley last year. That should have been my first question. What is the Antonine?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's. I just. I always just presumed it was, even with the killing. I yeah, because I know wondered like like you, I wondered about the the killing of the Thars, but I thought maybe there's a sense of better dead than slaves. But it it it's vague because you know there's talk of a blockade, but it's never clear if it's just uh one species doing the blockade or it's a collection or quite what what the the background is is here
0: something else that i love about the book and again i'm going to go into this in much more detail i've already written my script for the back half of this program which as we're talking on thursday afternoon i have not recorded yet so what gallagher does that's interesting is He takes a lot of the long, silent, visual passages on TV and he converts it into prose. And he offers a lot of written explanations in the book for things that are never explained or are only implied on television. I think it's a fascinating way to write. So rather than doing a transcript of Paul Joyce's shooting script, he is telling a different story almost because he's giving you context for things that you never would have guessed from watching the television. So it's almost hard science fiction, whereas the TV is much more lyrical so that's why I made the point about it being nearly a different story did you have the same experience reading this you know finding explanations for things on television that you didn't realize needed
1: explaining um yeah there there was some some interesting moments um it's little things like um the the doctor when he gets hit by the time winds he talks about his hand getting old which and I'm not sure if that was something that was in the script originally or, or. something that he added because obviously the doctor hand is injured but it's this indicates that he's aging him which feels almost a appropriate for series 18 when you consider what you know a few stories earlier he was aged in the leisure hive and you know a couple of stories from this he's going to be uh regenerating thematically appropriate to a lot of what series 18 does I, i think oddly enough the bit that really sticks with me is the gundam at the end where oh, yeah. it comes out, it comes out the mirror and it looks like it's going to attack, but then it's, he, did, he has this lovely little line about it. I can't quite remember how it goes, but he talks about how it wasn't built to think because then, or to think too deeply, because then it would have to consider how horrible its actions were, but it had been there to, you know, uh, free the slaves from the masters, but who were the slaves now? Who the You know, these people in chains that were in front of it. So it just chooses to walk by. And I really like that. That was, I that, that I mean, that we, we don't see that. Nothing like that happens on the screen. There's nothing equivalent to that. We just see the Thals leave the ship and, you know, then they're fine. But this, it really caught my attention, this one. I thought it was a beautiful little moment.
0: Yeah, I have flagged that and I'll be reading out. as a three-paragraph section later on in this program. So definitely stay tuned for that. But I think we get a lot more in the book about where the Gundans come from mm. and how they operate. On TV, they're a visual device because they have the skull like faces, and of course they show up for that remarkable part three cliffhanger, but the book gets us a little further inside their circuitry and helps them understood a little better, I think.
1: Yes, yeah, definitely. And what's also interesting is that there's a real emphasis on how how damaged K nine is in a way, which I know is kind of we see on the script, but here it's very much like they essentially go, oh, no, he's dying." I mean, they don't use those words, but there's a real emphasis on on things crumbling in him and and what exactly has gone wrong and how it, it's interesting that there's very much a sense of if he goes through that he goes to the mirror he'll never be able to come back which is it's kind of it's, it's very sad in a way in a way it doesn't it happens so quickly in, in, on the tv Partly because everyone, everyone in the production hated K nine and wanted to get him off as quickly as possible, so they're like, "Oh, he's going by." And here it's a bit more of an emphasis of how damaged he is and 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 how 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 sad the doctor is. Like there's a line at the end, um, how he's not just part of the tireless machinery, you know, but here he is essentially dying. It, it was. <laughs>
0: There is this great passage, which I am not reading out later in the program. I would encourage you to seek it out. The last few pages of the book, the doctor briefly thinks about rebuilding K-9 because this model is effectively dead. But even if you rebuild him, you're not going to be be able to duplicate K-9's personality. So he's basically writing off K-9. There's no way to go back and create the same K-9 over again, which is why he gives K-9 to Romano, where K-9 can be restored on the other side of the mirror, which is exactly what happens in the end. Page 121 mm-hmm. is the – uh passage that i'm talking about well worth a read if you haven't read the whole book yet
1: yeah definitely definitely what was interesting for me is a lot of the scripts in because obviously you know again has talked about how much the script was changed a lot of it's at least a lot of the lines that i recognize are in there does doesn't have my favorite one of my favorite all-time doctor lines though which is we'll burn that bridge when we come to it (laughs) I was quite disappointed that it wasn't there because it's always been a favourite. But it's not in there. And we get, you know, it's nice we get a fair amount from Romana's viewpoint as well. Though, again, her leaving's quite sudden, but it is in the the TV show as well. I'd be interested if um, the revised version, if he builds up to it a bit more, because there's kind of like, at the beginning she's like, the you know, Gallifrey's mentioned and stuff. And then, but at the end, she just goes, no, I don't want to go back. Actually. Uh, I've got to make sure the thousands are... actually, there was an interesting line where she's like, I basically going to make sure the thousands start trying to be slavers again,
0: which is and very that, that, different that, from the TV dialogue. of yeah. The exact same scene, which I'm going to be playing later on in the program. And I'll talk about this too. Later on. If you look at the original scripts on the Blu-ray, Romana doesn't leave in the original script. This was written before they mm-hmm. knew when Lala Ward was exiting the show. So that last line shall be superb. That's the last line of the TV story, but it refers to Byrock and not to Romana. Or Birock, I should say.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I think it probably works better for Romana. But oh, the line uh, works much
0: better for Romana.
1: <laughs> it it's I mean, in in some ways I always say with, with Romana leaving, I like I like it when Dot Two Companions go off to like do something interesting you know so her going off to help the thousand make sure they stay free basically maybe be the doctor for the for e-space essentially or, or do, I, I like that you know when, when the companions go back to the normal lives on earth I'm like no why, why would you do why would you do that um so and it, it's one of my great frustrations with um Doctor Who's spin-off that you know there's this whole thing of like reminds like I don't want to go back to Gallifrey I want to explore blah blah, blah. it's great and fans go brilliant you're now president of Gallifrey. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> no, that doesn't make any sense in what we see. Okay, she's president of Gallifrey, fine. <laughs> Although, to
0: be fair, that comes from the New Adventures and the Eighth Doctor Adventures, which yeah. I want to talk about in a minute because that dovetails beautifully with your other podcast. <laughs> uh, but it's funny that Stephen Gallagher writes two stories for Doctor Who, okay? He does a Tom Baker story in season 18, right? And then he does a Peter Davison story in season 20. Both of those stories end with a female companion leaving to take on the role of the doctor in rescuing this benighted civilization. So Romana stays behind mm. to work with the Tharols and get them out of slavery. As Biroc says at the end of the TV, we, have, uh, we are enslaved on many worlds. And then in Terminus, Nissa stays behind to work with the Vanir and help them cure Lazarus disease properly because they have been subservient to this horribly inefficient corporation, which cares entirely for profit and not for health care, which sitting here in America in 2021 is an incredibly raw and open wound. And Stephen Gallagher got there first. And then Eric Sayward ruined it by producing the story the way he did. But you can almost put Romana and Nyssa in the exact same boat. It's almost the exact same departure.
1: Yeah, and I guess it, it's an effective one. I mean, again, I'm not a huge fan of Terminus, but I do like that leaving scene that Nissa has. I, I like the reason she's leaving. She's basically going, I have proper medical training. You know, it, it calls back to her, her her origin. She's like, I'm actually a highly intelligent, highly trained, bi- like, was it biochemist or something? I, like, I, c- I can make a difference here in the way that the doctor couldn't because I am happy to stay. And, you know, the, it's one of those wonderfully under- underactive moments that davidson does where he you know he's just where he says goodbye to her and it's he's very much like kiss on the on the cheek which is quite radical for his doctor oh absolutely Um, but you know he's very much like a trapped in a glass box of emotion to quote anchorman you can tell he's like quite upset but and then you get you know the scene to her and and and, and Tiga, tigre it's actually a very good companion leaving scene and i like the reason she leaves but as it's interesting what you point out i hadn't considered that that he actually writes to two companions leaving i guess there is that there is that similarity but like i said for me it's it's a good way for a companion to go a Companion to go actually i can make a difference here i'm gonna stay is is one of my favorite um cliches or companions leaving i guess i'd rather that than they die to be honest
0: terminus is not coming up on this show for about three months that novelization comes off a little bit down the road and i'm only doing a book a week but the novelization of terminus i think will also make clear the story that is produced is not the story that stephen gallagher wanted to tell and the story that stephen gallagher wanted to tell is much better preserved in the novelization which has none of the many flaws of terminus the tv episode so i'm going to have a different guest on for that but i think you'll find when you listen to that in about three months we'll be touching on a lot of the same points with regard to the original script versus the tv production the problem is that the person who directed terminus was not paul joyce and did not put in the same really amount of effort or flair that paul joyce did now if paul joyce had done terminus we might all be talking about terminus in very different tones
1: Yes, yes, I guess that, that, that's true. Or he, or an older, more experienced GNT might have fried him and not let him back on at all. <laughs>
0: uh, so coming back to Romana, so Terrence Dix writes a new adventure. And I don't know if this is one of the ones that you covered on your show. We'll talk about that in a minute. He writes Blood Harvest in July 1994. It is a sequel to the story that we discussed last week on this show. State of Decay, with Denise Sutton as my guest. Blood Harvest kicks open a whole new line in the N.A.'s slash Eighth Doctor Adventures, where Romana does come back to Gallifrey and helps put down a revolution there and ends up becoming president again. Except in the Eighth Doctor Adventures, Romana regenerates, and Romana 3 is visually based on the old American silent film actress Louise Brooks. And this Romana is a little bit more amoral, if not evil. So the Romana in the Eighth Doctor Adventures does bad things to Gallifrey and comes to a sticky end during the Time War. Spoilers for a line of books that's 25 years old that is being covered on much better podcasts than this. But you are talking about the new adventures now on your show. And I know you mentioned it the last time you were here, but that was nine months ago, and I have a slightly increased audience. Tell us about the show that you and Eric are doing and where you are with the new adventures right now.
1: All right. Well, we do a show called The Real McCoy, which, um, as its name might suggest, is an in-depth look at the Seven era. So we have covered all the TV stories except for the TV movie. Uh, we'll do that after we finish with the New Adventures. And we're covering a. We've decided we decided to cover a selection of the New Adventures, so not all all sixty. Uh, partly because I don't think I could persuade Eric to hold on for that long. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> we our last episode uh, was out in November. Uh, that was set piece and we are recording next month we've had a little hiatus because christmas and life and i got covid and so it's oh been a bit of a i'm okay now but you know it, it it's then work got busy and so it it's i mean jason i always say the fact you managed to produce a show a week of, of anything up to two hours is is a miracle in dot who podcasting and something i admire greatly because like i, <laughs> I can't um but yeah we're recording next month we should be recording one of the biggies actually human nature and then we'll be doing a few more after that we're we're basically trying to hit probably most of what you call the the big hitters in the range and one or two like smaller ones that i i particularly like um yeah so obviously we'll be doing damaged goods and i i've pretty much read everything we're going to do except lung barrow i've oddly enough never read lung barrow so that's going to be interesting You'll people get to hear my like kind of first time reaction to that and are you aware
0: that, of the plot of long barrow and which returning yes, characters yes,
1: are in it? so yes. it does dovetail um, into
0: our conversation here a little bit
1: yes no i'm i'm aware of the, the the you know the basic plot and everything i you know i don't think there'll be a lot to surprise me in it but i'm still curious because oddly enough one of the we did look at well actually eric couldn't do the episode so i with another guest of ours john Deere, who does a very good um nigel neal um podcast the Birdcast. uh i'd highly recommend we looked at times crucible and i kind of hated it which is odd because i remember reading it and liking it but i found it a real drag and we've read books since that are probably technically worse but don't drag as much as that did so i'm like how am, how am i going to feel when i get to lungbarrow but we'll see and then after that we'll do some again uh, maybe a handful of the new adventure uh, no yeah, sorry a handful of the big finishes uh neither of us are particularly big big, big finish people there's a few i want to cover but i physically cannot afford to buy all of the seven dots and new uh, big <laughs> finishes um so that that's it but yeah basically so we're, we're looking it, it's it's an absolute uh, the mccoy era is yeah you know, my, my all-time it's like my era in many ways and so it's just a lovely chance to go in depth on, on an era i love and 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 talk about two anarchists who like going around blowing stuff up really <laughs>
0: the new adventures are my doctor who as much as i love season 18 and my all-time favorite classic series story is coming up on this show in about five or six weeks as much as i am a classic series guy and as much as the black and white portion of the classic series is almost my favorite era of the show especially the hartnells new adventures came out when i turned 18 i started reading them as a freshman in college They took me up until my second to last year of law school, which is when the Seventh Doctor regenerated and they lost the license and the Doctor transferred over to the BBC books, leaving behind a series of doctorless new adventures starring a different character, which I largely have not read. But the new adventures and I came of age together, and that was Mm – back then it was the center of gravity for Doctor Who Phantom because it was the only – not counting the DWM comic strips, it was the only ongoing story in Doctor Who. So all of us on Arts Doctor Who, it was one book a month, and we were discussing the books as they came out, and there were polls, and there were reviews, and we had some of the authors joining us on RecArts Doctor Who to discuss their books or other authors in the same range. It was an incredible time for fandom because we were all there watching these books get created, and a lot of fans ended up becoming first-time authors. You have all these People in their 20s writing full length Doctor Who novels for the first time. And as I've said before, Doctor Who is at its best when it's being made by radical young people in their 20s, like Stephen Gallagher, who's 27, like Verity Lambert, who's about 27 when she starts producing the show, like I imagine Paul Joyce as the director. I haven't looked up his age, but I would assume he was in his late 20s, if not early 30s. So Doctor Who is best when young people are creating and doing whatever they want, and that's what the New Adventures were. And again, some of the books are better than others. You know, the expression goes, a person is smart, people are stupid. Some of the NAs don't work, but as a whole, they are much, much greater than the sum of their parts because of what they were Mm -hmm. doing and when they were doing it, and what these authors went on to do later in their careers between the Cornells and the lance parkins and especially russell t davies who wrote one of the most highly regarded new adventures so i just envy you guys on your journey and i i listened to your set piece recently so i'm looking forward to following along to see where you go next
1: yeah i mean it is it is it is i I have really enjoyed revisiting them um i think partly because yeah when i started really being like a doctor who fan um instead of just someone mildly interested in the show you know they were they were still around, and they they hadn't quite come to an end yet, so you could still pick a lock up in the bookshop. So for me, it was very much I was the right age, fourteen, fifteen, so I was absolutely peak audience for, for it, and yeah, they were quite formative for me um, and I, yeah I think it's one of those it is one of those periods of two spin-offs that I think almost needed to happen they, because you know they they push the shows in all sorts of ways that that wouldn't have happened before and wouldn't happen now but it's all right for them to have done it because to be honest not enough people were reading it for it to, to distort the public's view of Dot Who for all time um obviously like i said we're doing human nature next which is like the biggie from the range it's only one of two that have been reissued i think that's uh shakedown did weirdly enough shakedown oh, wow. got reissued <laughs> well, that's because
0: it's a terence dicks probably rather than because it, had, it was on its own a great
1: book yeah copies. and and it had the Sontarans in it. So I think it was part of like they were doing a monster rage. And I was like, really? Shakedown? <laughs> um, I, and yeah, obviously, human nature. And obviously, it's been adapted for the TV. So it's going to be, I haven't reread it for quite a while. So I'm curious. You know, there are a lot of differences between the, the book and the TV version. My memory is that the book is slightly more radical, as you would expect. But it'll be, that's going to be really interesting to compare and contrast, I think. Yeah, um But we're, we're not doing was, shakedown. <laughs> Just, we're not doing shakedown, though.
0: I was going to say Human Nature was written by an author who at the time identified as an atheist in his 20s. And it's got a very socialistic worldview. And I mean that in the positive sense. It is a book written from an anti-war standpoint. And one of the characters in the book is a practicing socialist. By the time you get to the TV production 15 years later, the author is coming from a very, very different place in life. Yes. And the politics of the story are changed quite a bit and of course we can also assume that russell t davies had done a rewrite of the cornell script which i think he was doing to everything so while they share a similar plot style very very different animals the book and yes. the TV.
1: yeah it's going to be it's it's going to, like i said i don't think i've read it for for a few years reread it rather i should say for a few years now so it's going to be a very interesting um can be a very interesting reread for me really looking forward to it actually
0: so other than The Real McCoy, any other podcasts or anything else you want to promote? Uh,
1: yeah, I also also do one called Harry Sullivan is an Imbecile with my friend Brian. We had a couple of episodes uh, a couple of episodes out last year after a bit of a gap, and we should uh, hopefully have a few more out this year. It's it's a bit more random than The Real McCoy. Uh, we, we kind of just tackle subjects that we feel like. So we talked a bit about the Matt Smith 11th at uh, the Matt Smith, uh, sorry, Matt Smith 11th Doctor, as opposed to david tennant's 11th doctor um the, the, the 11th doctor comics from from uh titan um it's always been a personal favorite of mine and we 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 but we both love um harry sullivan uh deeply so that's been a topic of conversation in the past as well uh so, so yeah that that's that's my my two major projects at the moment the real mccoy and uh, harry sullivan is an imbecile
0: speaking of major projects you got time for a game of 20 questions
1: I, well, I'll i give it a go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's the attitude. I am one random Doctor Who story from anywhere between 1963 and 2022. I am selected at random from the randomizer.net, which is a production of the Flight Through Entirety podcast. You are going to guess with 20 yes or no questions which story I am, starting with question number one.
1: Okay was it made in the 20th century
0: no i am not a story made in the 20th century question two
1: okay Okay. were you made under rtd as a showrunner
0: yes i was i am an rtd showrun story question three
1: is rose the companion
0: no, Rose is not the companion. So you're one for three, but you've narrowed it down pretty well. Question 4.
1: Is Martha the companion?
0: Yes, she is, which is funny because okay. we were just talking about her in another context. Question 5.
1: So just because there are ways that I could get caught out on this, are you a Series 3 story?
0: Yes, I am a Series right. 3 story. Question 6.
1: Are you set in the past?
0: That's a technical question, but yes, I am set in the past.
1: (laughs) Are you the Shakespeare Code?
0: No, I am not the Shakespeare Code.
1: Are you human nature? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, no. That, that would have been amazing if I was, because we just talked about it. But no, I am not human. I am from the same season as human nature, but I am not human nature.
1: Okay.
0: I think we're at question nine.
1: Are you the Daleks in Manhattan? Oh
0: uh, No, I do not want to be the Daleks in Manhattan for many reasons. No, I am not the Daleks in Manhattan. Oh, God. Um, I inadvertently gave the game away before when I said that I was a technicality, and I'm giving you this hint because there are now more questions left than stories remaining in New Series 3, but when I said I was set in the past in a technical sense, that might give you a little bit of a clue, especially because there aren't too many other choices.
1: No. Are you Blink?
0: Yes, I am Blink because part of me takes place in the 1920s and part of me takes place in
1: 1969. <laughs> uh, I, I'm glad to got it, but imagine if it had been human nature, that would have just, everything would have synced perfectly. But... That would have been oh.
0: hilarious. Actually, the very first choice that I got was a Hartnell that I've already covered on this show before. So this is the second choice, but <laughs> we have not done Blink yet. And it's always worth talking about Blink, which, by the way, shares a cast member in common with Planet of Evil making this an episode that is now referred to planet of evil
1: twice yes yes it does doesn't it I always i always i always forget there's actually quite a, a small little interesting little body of of new who actors who appeared in old who, who um like linda baron cuz i don't know if i was i was listening to people talking about enlightenment earlier and uh yeah got our uh, captain rack um yeah oh that's good i can't remember what i can't remember how many questions i took last time i did this so i'm just going to presume i've ever I'm about the same number.
0: <laughs> I really need to hire an intern to go back and categorize the show and figure out which 20 questions I've done and which episodes and how many people have gotten it and how many questions. I know that Conrad is the reigning king because he got it in six and Pete Lambert is the co king with an asterisk. So if Conrad is number one, Pete Lambert is 1A. So you are not one of the winners yet, but maybe next time you'll get it in more than Conrad. Maybe you'll get it in less than Conrad next time. We'll see.
1: Okay, but fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Go
0: <laughs> where else can we find you on the web apart from the two podcasts you just mentioned?
1: Um, you can find me on Twitter as long as it lasts, which may not be much longer. <laughs> um, I'm not posting on there very often, but I am still on there uh, at Adam J Clegg. Uh, you can also follow follow the Real McCoy in there at Real underscore Pod. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, but. I only occasionally post when I get a tattoo or a particularly good dog photo, um, and I cannot remember what my Instagram thing is. Give me a second. Okay, uh, yeah, you can find me as Adam Clegg on there uh, or Fluid Link, uh, which yes is the .2 reference. Um, yes. So yeah, that's pretty much um, pretty much it for me online at the moment.
0: All right, Adam, thanks so much. Stick around after we disconnect, and I will. Book another appearance for you. Have a great rest of the uh, night. Uh, thank you again.
1: Uh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah!
0: <laughs> Doctor Who and Warriors Gate written by Stephen Gallagher, writing as John Leidecker, televised as Warriors Gate, teleplay by Stephen Gallagher televised in January 1981, published in April 1982, cover artist Andrew Skilleter. The Doctor and his companions are trapped in an e-space universe, struggling to find the coordinates which will break the deadlock and take them back into normal space. When all else fails, the Doctor suggests programming the TARDIS on the toss of a coin. Before he realizes what is happening, that is just what Adric has done. When the TARDIS arrives at its destination, according to the console readouts, the craft is nowhere. And nowhere is exactly what it looks like. This book came out April 1982. April 15, 1982, the most important day in the history of my fandom. My other fandom. Baseball fandom. That was the day I saw my first New York Mets baseball game in person it was a thursday afternoon game against the philadelphia phillies in the flushing neighborhood in the borough of queens on the sites of the 1964 and 1939 world's fairs and given that this is a literature podcast i'll tell you that it's also the site of the valley of ashes made famous in the great gatsby although the valley of ashes was gone long before the new york mets came to town this was not a great day for the metropolitans they lost 8 to 4 in 13 innings. If you've been listening to this show for a while, this is where you're expecting me to drop in an audio clip from the game, but there aren't any. Most baseball games from this era, even more so than 1960s Doctor Who, no longer exist in video or audio. There wasn't even a This Week in Baseball episode that week that I can find online. Now, I do have audio from the April 17th and April 18th 1982 games against the Montreal Expos. But the Mets ended up losing 97 games that year, so I won't torment you with the banality of 1982. Paul Schoons pointed out on Twitter, regarding last week's episode, State of Decay, that State of Decay was the first novelization he bought on its initial release. I have to think about that. I will not reach that point until 1985. But April 1982 is important, and not only for my increasingly tenuous baseball analogies. Warrior's Gate is only the fourth target novelization published in the last 12 months, courtesy of the 1981 writer strike, which kept Terrence Dicks away from the target range for most of that year. And look at the cover of Warrior's Gate, another gorgeous Andrew Skilletter painting. Now look at it again. There's David Weston's face and barrel makeup. There's the Gateway Arch, the privateer ship taking off, and a deep blue and yellow color scheme with a hint of a spiral nebula. You know what's not on the cover? Tom Baker. It's a fourth Doctor book without the fourth Doctor. Why? Because it's April 1982. The previous book, State of Decay, came out in January 1982, the first month of season 19, Peter Davison's first season as the fifth Doctor. But now, April 1982, producer John Nathan Turner's oversight of the target books is getting real. No more past doctors on the cover, and Tom Baker is now, for the first time since the very early days of the Target range, and we're now in Season 5 of this podcast, so that's a long time. Tom Baker is no longer the current doctor on TV. He is now, in fact, a past doctor. j also famously nixed the original Stephen Gallagher draft of this book, which was based on Gallagher's original scripts, Those scripts were later heavily revised by Christopher H. Bidmead. Adam and I talked about this earlier. The original Gallagher draft of Warrior's Gate came out as an audio, an excellent audio, narrated by John Colshaw, and will soon be a new Target paperback in summer 2023, just a few months away. We'll be covering that new paperback on Trap One, and then much later on in the life of this podcast. This week is solely about the 1982 release of Warrior's Gate, the moment when JNT had Tom Baker's face taken off the covers, with one later exception, and when JNT asked the book to be rewritten because it wasn't close enough to the TV. Gallagher, using the pen name John Lidecker for professional reasons, is also something very rare for this era of Target, a first-time author. Before this book, the last two first-time Target writers were David Fisher, in 1981, and then Ian Barter with Ark and Space way back in 1977. That's only three first-time writers in five years. But from here on out, there will be a lot more first-time writers, three more to come in 1982 alone. So this book is fresh. It's only 124 pages of text, which is about the length of your standard terence, but there are also no chapters And the first five pages are a prologue that features a not-on-TV character, depicting a space battle, of which the TV shows us only the aftermath. And then Gallagher punctuates the text with computer monitor readout text, always concluded with a sardonic observation offered by the computer to the privateer crew. We've literally never seen a target book like this before. The Antonine Killer Sequence, the last remnant from Gallagher's submitted novelization draft, is hard sci-fi, true hard sci-fi. The only comparison with a previous target is the Robert Holmes pen prologue to The Time Warrior, but the Holmes prologue at least featured that TV story's villain. The Antonine killer here, perhaps a Tharal, perhaps some other species bent on destroying slave ships, Adam and I are shore, is never referenced on TV. Gallagher's second scene in the book is filtered through the eyes of Packard, the privateer's first officer, delightfully played by Kenneth Cope on TV. And this stuff is funny. Workplace comedy. Office space for a science fiction slave ship. The computer refers to the privateer crew as boobs, and Packard's observations are acerbic. Quote, Packard couldn't tell whether he, Captain Warwick, was being strong and silent, or if his mind had gone blank. Sorry, gone offline to sort and dump information. Or, Lane wasn't the fastest or the brightest, but he was the biggest, and that counted for a lot. Gallagher also offers prose explanations for concepts described only poetically on TV. Page 10, What is a Time Sensitive? Quote, Time sensitivity was the Tharrell's curse. From an infinite range of possible futures, they could select one and visualize it in detail as if it had already happened. Sometimes, in moments of extreme trance, their bodies would shimmer and glow, dancing between those possible futures, and only loosely anchored in the present. It took intense concentration to bring a thyroid back into phase with the moment, or chains, the heaviest chains, would do the job just as efficiently. Again, hard sci-fi, a bracing change from our previous target adaptations. Now, compare pages 1-12 through 12 of the book with the first several minutes of the TV Part 1. There's almost no overlap. The privateer scene has almost entirely different dialogue, and Aldo and Royce, the two Greek chorus characters a la The Hidden Fortress, or a la a particular 1977 sci-fi movie shot at Pinewood and on location in Tunisia, they're on TV, but don't show up in the book until much later. Gallagher also adds privateer crewmen Nestor and Joss, J-O-S, also not named on television. The first TARDIS scene is markedly different from the TV in terms of dialogue, and you can relax. I'll spend the rest of this essay taking it as read that the book, after the JNT requested rewrites, is still very different from the TV, and not doing a line by line comparison. Except to say that Gallagher, as Terence the book before, doesn't get into who Adric is, or was Adric already dead in the TV chronology by April nineteen eighty two but does give us on page 14 a good view of the doctor's psyche from Romana's view. Quote, Romana had seen this mood before. It came about when the doctor's own argumentative reserves were running low. So he turned the tables and take over his opponent's ideas, leaving nothing else for anyone else to go on. Watching it being done to someone else could be fun. Having it done to you, and not for the first time, was only tiresome. And this prefaces Romana's coming decision to leave throughout the doctor. Gallagher focuses on what the Discontinuity Guide described as the, quote, banal villainy of the privateer crew. Lane's nose itches inside his space helmet, and he nearly injures himself, trying to scratch it. The TV version has to add a line, absent from the book, explaining what the I Ching is. The book also explains why Birok leaves the ship so early on without rescuing his fellow Tharyl slaves. Page 21 has one of the best takedowns of organized religion— that you'll find in what's nominally a children's book. What do you think is the biggest common factor in the belief system of every developed culture? Basic ignorance? No. Faith? Same thing. There's a classical allusion to the gates of Troy, and Birock, it said, might have been on the run from a fairy tale. This book is, in short, energizing. A mix of hard sci-fi, observational humor, workplace comedy, classical allusions, and poetic comparisons. Steve Gallagher was, by the way, only 27 when this came out. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Doctor Who works best when it's run by young radicals in their 20s. Of course, on TV, Birock says that he is, quote, the shadow of my past and of your future. That's not in the book. May have been a Bidmead line. Bidmead was also only 39 when he script edited season 18, and I was wrong before about Paul Joyce when talking to Adam, Wikipedia says he was between 36 and 40 when this was made. The Wikipedia bio author doesn't seem to know his exact year of birth. Still, from where I sit, even Bidmeet and Joyce were babies. For another example, Gallagher, at age 27, has a very firm handle on the Tom Baker doctor. Last paragraph of page 35, Romano watched him go knowing better than to do otherwise. Something she'd learned about the doctor was that he never took orders, and that he very rarely even took notice. When the logic of a situation seemed to be making loud demands for caution, it was by no means unusual for the doctor to take a leap into the dark if his intuition suggested that he should. Intuition, as he had often said, was to be valued far above logic. For logic, could be designed into a machine by anybody, with a basic knowledge of computer science, Whilst intuition was solely the product of evolution. And, as he had also been known to assert, the doctor had much greater respect for the architect of evolution than he had for the designers of what he had called Tinker Toy Electronic Brains. But enough about Chat GPT, let's turn back to Warrior's Gate. Now, for comparison's sake, when I was 27, I hadn't even started my current career path. I knew nothing at age 27. Gallagher, at age 27, is looking right into the future and telling us that AI is a terrible idea. Now, again, this is not going to be a line-by-line review. Suffice to say, there is something memorable on every page, but Gallagher dealing in firm sci-fi concepts, while maybe lacking the poetry of some of Bidmead's revision and all of Paul Joyce's transcendent direction, at least gives you the plot much earlier than the TV did and in marvelous prose. Bottom of page 46, Birok stood in the gloom of the hall, and looked on the lost glory of the Tharals. He knew that he was in the middle of a legend, but it was a legend of defeat, no more than an echo of the greatness that had preceded the enslavement of the race, the fall which had scattered them throughout a thousand systems to live as land-grubbing beggars, while they waited for the hunters to drop from the sky. The extra clarity, Of the early prose does come at the expense of the last episode, which on TV is where much of the useful exposition usually comes in. The part one material runs for 51 pages, about 42% of a 124 page book. That sort of percentage I can work out in my head from my knowledge of baseball batting averages, although I'll point out to you that the current state of baseball analytics has rendered batting average pretty much obsolete in favor of more advanced statistics. The Part 4 material in the book is just 25 pages. As I read these books one episode a night, you can understand why so much of the script so far has been dedicated to the Part 1 material. We've talked a lot on the show about the different prose styles of the best target writers. Terence focuses on observational humor and razor-sharp interjections. Malcolm Hulk invents full-length character bios for tertiary characters that people remember better than the TV performances. Ian Marder narrates his fictional worlds through the Five Senses, and Stephen Gallagher, in keeping with this hard sci-fi bent, gives significance to props. In the first few pages of the Part 2 material, pages 52 through 54, he makes much of the heavy weight of b manacles a clue to what dwarf star alloy will soon do to the gateway, and he gives an in-universe explanation for Lane's portable mass detector. It measures cargo from outside the hold, so the crew doesn't have to go in. In fact, on page 62, Elaine reflects that Rorvik, quote, probably valued the mass detector more than any individual member of the party. This is a lived-in world, and while I love the TV story to pieces, I also love this alternate take, which lacks Paul Joyce's visual poetry, but which fires the imagination. We'll see this again with Terminus, where the book far, far outweighs the TV. The book puts the TV scenes in several different orders, and doesn't introduce Aldo and Royce until page 62. Aldo and Royce are two of the best things about the TV. Well, there are many best things about the TV. They're the stories Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, a la Tom Stoppard. The two crewmen who don't care, if dead Tharrell's out of the cargo, eat into the crew's bonus because they're on straight salary. Gallagher's Terminus being one of the other few Doctor Who TV scripts to impose real-world capital versus labor economy into its fictional universe. Their first book scene, Aldo and Royce, mirrors dialogue from City of Death, bottom of page 62. Royce says, quote, It's not as complicated as it looks. Nothing, Aldo was thinking, could be as complicated as this mess was looking. We learn that Sagan is a two-fingered typist, Gallagher's shorthand for the unskilled office worker, not up to the privateer's more complex task of escaping the gateway void. More seriously, Gallagher narrates Romana's thought processes as she, the Doctor's Gallifreyan student intern, gives herself negative performance appraisals for having gotten herself quite literally tied down to the privateer's navigation station. The Part 2 material contains a lot more direct quotes from the TV dialogue than does Part 1, and this gives a better insight into which lines were written by Bidmead, most of Adric's and Canine's scenes in The Void.
1: Well, I thought you went that way.
0: Mass detection circuits indicate maximum reading on
1: current vector. Probability of error. Well, what is the probability of error, K9? Recomputing. Probability of error 87.7948%. 87 But
0: that's terrible! The accuracy of this unit has deteriorated below zero utility. You mean you're worse than useless? Affirmative. And, also, Romana's computer lingo double-talk, which I imagine came straight from Bidmead's day job.
1: I use a digitally-modeled time-cone isometry parallel bust into the image translator. Local motion is mapped in yes, the well, refresh uh, cycle. Yes, never mind.
0: The no-chapter format to the novelization makes the cliffhangers a little hard to find. Part 1 ends in mid-paragraph at the bottom of page 51. Parts 2 and 3 end in mid-section, on pages 76 and 100, respectively. The first few minutes of Part 3 on TV are incredible. Well, the whole story, incredible, but just take the small burst of scenes in Microcosm, k trying unsuccessfully to teach the privateer crew something about physics, the doctor on the far side of the mirror talking to Birok. The book contains these component scenes, albeit with different dialogue, while lacking the visual poetry of the TV, I may have said that earlier, The book does explain how the doctor got through the mirror by touching it with his hand that had been scarred by the time winds. This journey is never explained or rationalized on TV. Something I've only just noticed is that the story seems to be a big influence on what Christopher H. Bidmead is going to do next. We're introduced to an impossible locale, and then in part three, that impossible locale starts collapsing in on itself which is exactly how Bidmead is going to structure his coming scripts for Lagopolis and then Castor Valva, the shrinking of the gateway, which is teased in Part 3 here, both on TV and on the corresponding book material, is not so different from the entropy that destroys Lagopolis or the recursive occlusion that will destroy Castor Valva. That's three consecutive novelizations of TV stories that seem to have been a big influence on Bidmead's own writing. The many references to Unearthly Child and Legopolis, see episode 65, and the colony ship story in State of Decay that is revisited after a fashion in Frontios, see episode 66. Something else Gallagher does here, by the way, that Bidmead will soon do in the Legopolis book, and boy am I excited for that episode, is to convert TV dialogue into inner monologue or prose. On TV, Romana explains to Adric about dwarf star alloy and why the privateer engines are so big. But in the book, she's by herself, and it's all shown through her thoughts. There's an actual explanation of what Dwarf Star Alloy is, followed eventually on page 103 by the very poetic description, quote, The only substance dense enough to pin down a dream. Gallagher gets right into Ramana's head on page 88. As much as I love Lala Ward, it's unfair that this book, the second-to-last novelization to feature her, And her final story, in TV order, check that, third to last, is the one that gets into her head best. Page 88. She sat on the floor, as far away from the water and the filth as she could get, and tried to think. Dwarf star metal, time sensitivity, canine's incomprehensible raving, all of the revelations and discoveries of the last few hours spun together in a cosmos where there was no beauty or sense. She was more than ever aware of the need to find the doctor, but now, for the second time, she found herself under restraint, and for the second time, she really had only herself to blame. Now the job of contacting the doctor, wherever he might be, was left to Adric. Even though he was able, this was a burden that was neither fair nor particularly well-starred. It was all looking very bleak. And on the bottom of page 89, Gallagher lays clear the real meaning of the gateway void, in a way the TV story does not. The TV story I love for the visuals, but the book, which offers tantalizing explanations of everything that Paul Joyce achieved with visual effects or editing, is also something I love. Page 89. Now Romana could see the void for what it was, not a true emptiness, but the neutral ground where all the alternate possibilities that made up her future were in a state of rest. Ahead was the gateway, far off but invisible no longer, and it seemed to her that behind the tumble-down ruin so close that it would need only a firm belief to make it real, stood a structure that shone gold and magnificent. They seemed to be floating towards it. They were probably running, but Romana had no sensation of making any effort or fighting any resistance. And page 91, she'd had a glimpse of a kind of paradise, and nothing could ever quite be the same. You will miss some of the visual flourishes added for TV. The Doctor knocking over the goblet in the past in Part 3, that he later picks up in the present in Part 1. The way Lane and Romana circle each other in the Privateer's Hold, mirroring identical actions between Lane and Biroc in Part 1. And yeah, I just wanted to bring up Lane in this essay somehow, one of my favorite tertiary characters in the classic series. You could tell the story without him, and the new series would tell this kind of story without him, but why would you want to lose that performance? In the book, Romana and Laszlo have a long dialogue scene, full of inventive wordplay. All this is wordless on TV. Each version is good. On TV, of course, the banquet scene laid in Part 3 is perfection. I know, I know, that's not a very objective statement. Let's break it down. The dialogue between Barak and the Doctor contains an expert's understanding of history, but the author is only 27 years old, or 39 if Bidmead wrote that. The TV visuals and time jumping and video editing are a great leap forward for Doctor Who's stylistic evolution. The cliffhanger is a terrific misdirection. You know what, let's listen to the audio. Of course, sadly, without the video, the audio is only the half of it, but it is still very, very, very good.
1: Such variety. Where did it all come from? The universe is our garden. Ah. So this is what it was all like. At the height of our empire, before the Farrells became the slaves of men. I notice you don't do too badly for staff. This garden of yours, the universe, how do you manage it? We use our power. For those who travel on the time winds, the vastness of space is no obstacle. Everything is ours. Including her. They're only people. So you're the masters the gunmen spoke of? hmm? The enslavers? The weak enslave themselves doctor. You and I know that. Yes. Yes. This is no way to run an empire. Danger. The doctor's in danger.
0: This is a surprise. Page 107. Romana's alliterative statement about the backblast backlash is a little shorter and a little less alliterative in print, but it's still here. Honestly, I don't get why people dislike that line. And on page 108, Gallagher takes a moment from out of the climax to give a plaintive last word the privateer's onboard computer sensors, rec room coffee dispenser now inoperable, the machine prints out, the most minor in a long list of catastrophic disasters about to befall the privateer and her crew. An interesting point, and we can trace this now thanks to the various draft scripts included as bonus BD-ROM material on the Blu-rays, is that this was not scripted as Romana's departure story. All that stuff was worked in later, largely by bidmeat, I think, there's an incredible scene in Part 4, where Romano literally becomes the Doctor, by repeating everything he says, only better. Right. Stop! If I'm not back, for whatever reason, in 13 and a half
1: minutes, I want you to dematerialize. Without you?
0: I am not letting you go alone.
1: That's an order. It's about time you started accepting orders. It is long past time, but how do you think you're going to find the cable? With my eye. Adric and I have seen it. Good. Come on. I'm coming too. You are not. It's long past time you learn to obey orders. Now stay here. And if we are not back, for whatever reason, 13 and a half minutes, I want you to dematerialize. Do you understand?:
0: I like that. I think you're improving. It's a matter of. Indifference.
1: 13 and a half minutes. I'm sure you will. This
0: TV scene, which I do not get tired of listening to, is in the book, although shorter and with some dialogue reallocated. Much of the Part Four material, all 25 pages of it, is like that. But I assume the end result on TV owes much to Bidmead and to Tom Baker and Lalla Ward in rehearsal. Last week, Episode 66, State of Decay, I mentioned that Terence missed an opportunity with Romana imagining the Doctor's death to tease the coming events of Lagopolis. On page 113 here is a scene eerily similar to the Legopolis climax of the Pharaohs project. The Doctor is shoved off a catwalk while trying to short out a cable, carrying a charge that could end the universe. But no teasing Logopolis here either. In the book, the cable is not supposed to be shorted out, and while Rorvik rants about getting something done, the theme of the episode is do nothing. And as Gallagher explains the disastrous consequence of the backblast on page 116, he does so with a sentence that could have come out of Legopolis, quote, Matter is only energy locked down tight. Energy is matter set free. Page 117, by the way, almost predicts the end of Earthshock, which aired a month before the book came out, though the similarity is almost entirely coincidental, I'm sure. Of Adric Gallagher writes, Perhaps one day he'd understand the pointlessness of dying alongside them, but that day was far away. In April 1982, not so much. Page 120 is a remarkable meditation on the last of the Gundans, and why it gives up its mission to kill the Brutes who rule. Adam mentioned it earlier. I'll give you the full text. It's difficult to imagine the workings of the Gundans' dark soul. For an age it had waited, obedient to its prime command. To kill the Brutes who rule. In some ways, it was an uncomplicated soul, bent to a single purpose... But in order to operate independently, in territory where its masters could never go, it needed a measure of analytical judgment. Not much. Never enough to allow it to reflect on its orders, just enough to let them carry it out. To seek out and punish the brutes who rule. And who were the rulers now? Who wore the chains? And who held the whips? Who ran? And who chased? The Gundan had pondered these issues as it walked alone through the abandoned gateway. Now it walked on past Biroch ignoring him. The last several pages of the book are like this, as one senses Gallagher rushing to finish within the limits of a page count or perhaps a tight publisher deadline. Romana's departure and the doctor's mathematical solution for finding the CVE and the gateway so he can go home is all delivered in prose rather than dialogue. The last five minutes of the TV story darn it, make me emotional. The book almost captures that, but the TV dialogue, while spare, and not especially given over to characters talking about how much they'll miss one another, in other words, the complete opposite of any RTD-era companion departure, ends in the Doctor's valedictory that Romano will be superb. The BD-ROM shows us the original ending, where Romano remained in the TARDIS and it was Birok off to free his people who would be superb. The line works much better this way, and you can see why Bidmead kept it. On TV... We learn that b needs a TARDIS to free his people from many worlds. K-9 can build a TARDIS from the schedules in his memory, and Romana can fly it. The book doesn't give us any of that. The line about Superb is relegated to the Doctor's inner thoughts, and none of his and Romana's final dialogue appears on TV. While the TV version is stronger, for me at least, the last paragraph of the book still manages to tug at my heartstrings. K-9 stayed a little longer. His senses were more acute and the traces of the TARDIS took longer to fade. But after a while, he wheeled around and started down the path behind the Tharyl and his mistress. Lala Ward was the noblest Romana of them all. But I'm going to miss K-9 just as much, even if he is going to be in five more original Target novelizations after this one. Quick, quick, inside.
1: What's the matter? I'm not coming with you.
0: Inside, that's an order!
1: No more orders, Doctor. Goodbye. What? What a moment to choose! But it is, isn't it? A moment to choose. I've got to be my own Romana. And
0: we need a Time
1: Lord. Goodbye, Doctor. No, 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 wait, wait. There's something else. K-9. he'll be all right with you behind the mirrors. I'll take care of him. I'll miss you. You were the noblest Romana of them all.
0: TARDIS. gone. TARDIS preserved in concept mistress. this unit contains all necessary schedules for duplication of the TARDIS. Mistress.
1: exactly K-9. Biroc will help us use the gateway to travel anywhere in e-space and we can give him time technology. you shall be our time Lord. And we will travel far. our people are enslaved on many planets.
0: And you and I K-9 are going to help Biroc free them. that's something we've got to do don't you think? mistress.
1: Will Romana be alright? Alright! She'll be superb.
0: Next time, on Doctor Who Literature, an audio essay that is going to be a lot shorter than this one, I promise, but it is no less one of my TV favorites. It is the third consecutive season 18 novelization, and it is, in fact, the third consecutive novelization published in story order, something we very rarely see in the target line. We're going to meet a new companion. We're going to meet an old enemy. We're going to meet a new friend who becomes an old enemy. And here on Doctor Who Literature, I'm going to be joined by another target novelizations podcaster. You've heard him on the show before. We're going to have a lot of fun talking about one of my favorite TV episodes and, for that corresponding reason, one of my favorite books, even if it is a Terence Dicks job and not quite as lyrical or hard sci-fi as Warrior's Gate. So join us next week for Doctor Who and the Keeper of Trocken. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. Special thanks to my special guest, Adam Clegg of the Real McCoy Podcast. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who novels, that's drwholite.com novels, and on email at Dr. Who literature, that's Dr. Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.